Welcome back to the Well-Tempered Wireless. Later this week, the Michigan Opera Theater kicks off their spring season with a contemporary opera by Ricky Ian Gordon, who joins us now from the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York City. Ricky, welcome. Hi, Chris. It's nice to be here. It's a, it's a great honor to be able to talk to you, and, and uh, I look forward to getting the lowdown on 27 in, okay. in, in just a moment. But first, I'd like to talk to you about you, if, if you don't mind. Uh, no. You started studying piano and composition, but songs seem to hold a special attraction for you. The voice. The voice holds a, a special attraction for me. I, my mother was a singer. You may have read that my mother was a, a singer and comedian in the Borscht Belt before I was born. <laughs> and she was very funny. Um, and very ribald and had a filthy mouth. But then when she sang, she sang exquisitely. She was, um, her first language was Yiddish and she sang all the, you know, Yiddish music and she was a great talent. And I think I fell in love with the voice because of my mother. But instead of becoming a comedian, uh, you became a, a composer. A, a composer, yeah. yes. Actually, because the truth is, Chris, I loved my mother, but sometimes the jokes became tiresome. <laughs> but the um, her singing, whenever she opened her mouth to sing, it was as if everything was set aside, and sometimes it, it felt um, mythological. Like when she sang, she sang for the whole diaspora. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. a very deep, organic sound. I suppose I wanted to recreate that because, you know, when you grow up with someone who's funny all the time and can get attention like that all the time, what you want is to connect deeply with them. And a lot of times when my mother sang, and by the way, I played for her, it was as if suddenly she really connected. You also have connected with, uh, I'd have to say, some marquee singers, Renee Fleming, Dawn Upshaw, Judy Collins... Audra yeah. McDonald, I love Audra McDonald. And, <laughs> She's great. And so many others. Uh, and there's a, a review in the New York Times uh, from a few years back that says about your work, About this was about a song recital uh, that you gave with many of these same uh, names I mentioned. And the writer says, the music bubbled and cascaded like a mountain brook after a spring rain. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, that was at the. I read that was for the Guggenheim. My one of my, it, that was um, a series of concerts I did. I did a big songbook at Lincoln Center, and then I did the Guggenheim. And it was after my CD "Bright Eyed Joy" came out, and that you know Audra was on that, and Dawn, and Adam Gettle, and Teresa McCarthy, and Judy Blazer. That was a fun CD to make, and that was my first big Nonsuch CD. And you, but you have a reputation of writing songs that are—I don't want to say easy to sing, but that fall nicely on the human voice. I would say, yeah. I mean, that was a nice way to put it. I would say that um, I love the voice. I've been going to the opera since I'm eight, and I think I know how to write for the voice, Chris. You know what I mean? Um, it it does come naturally to me. And I, I sing myself. I mean, I'm not Crusoe, but I sing when I write. So there isn't a vocal line that comes out from my pen that I don't try on myself first in whatever way I can sing it. Well, that's, that's very considerate for your singers. 
In the first half of the uh, the 20th century, to change the subject slightly, yes, uh, there was an address in Paris that was a meeting place for the, the the big names in art and literature, although in some cases they weren't big names yet, but they certainly would be if they weren't. Yes. And that was 27 Rue de Fleurousse. Yes. The 27 is the name of your, your opera. Yes. And it's a story about two extraordinary women, Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein. And some of the denizens that um, inhabited the magnificent salon that, the, that Gertrude first started with her brother, Leo. You said once, uh, I read, that uh, Gertrude Stein for you was a lifelong obsession. Yes. You know, um, first of all, I do want to say, um, Chris, the one thing when we talked about my mother being the singer, the other thing is I had three older sisters, right? And um, one of them was uh, ended up being quite well-known as a writer. Her name was Susan Lydon. But um, she would put me to bed by reading poetry to me when I was very little. And, when, and then she went to Vassar, and she would come home and read Edna St. Vincent Millay to me. Words, poetry um, was for me sort of balm, you know, or lullaby, if you will. So I was very comfortable with the idea of words and the idea of poetry. And um, when I first became interested in music, of course, I knew the pieces Virgil Thompson had, had written to Gertrude Stein, like Mother of Us All and Four Saints in Three Acts. But when I first got to um, Carnegie Mellon University, it all starts with tangerines and a terrible cold because I got very um, sick um, at the beginning of the school year one year, and I, uh, all I could eat was tangerines because my throat was so sore. And someone had given me the book Charmed Circle, and it's a book about Gertrude Stein and her world. And it really opened a door inside of me. It was as if I found uh, a whole world that I, on some level, wanted to mirror. You know, we're all always looking for sort of role models. And there was something about the way she conducted her life and the kind of things that happened at 27 Rue de Fleurus, and eventually her relationship with Alice, her completely open, unhidden relationship with a woman at a time when nobody really did that. It fascinated me, and of course, all that ever interested me was music and art and literature and poetry, and basically, 27 Rue de Fleurus was a clearinghouse for all of these things. I wanted to live there or create my own, and I did. I ended up, um, even when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I befriended all the artists, and I would buy art. Like I would go to um, galleries in Pittsburgh and especially, you know, people, artists at Carnegie Mellon, and I would buy their work. So by the time I moved to New York, I had all these, you know, pictures to put on the wall. And I started premiering all my new works in my apartment, and I called it a salon. You know, it was, she was my role model. Before we, one more thing we should do before we get yes. into the excerpts. I mean, yes. no wonder you became a writer of songs. Yes. Uh, we should explain what a salon was in those days. It wasn't just a, a nice room, although it was. No, a, a salon was a sort of a meeting house uh, a, for intellects and for artists. 
And um, I mean, I think of it starting way before them, you know, like Schubert wrote writing all those beautiful songs and all those piano pieces basically for a salon situation, for someone's living room where people, very often mostly people he knew, were gathered and he uh, premiered his pieces. You know, we think big concert hall and we think, but the intimacy of a salon and the, the conversation and the dinner and the the basic vibration of sort of geniuses meeting. Well, I think I think it's time to hear some of your work. Uh, the opera was commissioned by the Opera Theater of St. Louis, and we'll be hearing excerpts from a recording of their production. Um, where shall we begin? We're going to start right at the very beginning um, with the first section, the, the prologue, which is called Alice Knits the World. And I should say... The librettist for this opera is Royce Vavrek, and he's a very brilliant and imaginative young man. And he decided to start with the idea of Alice B. Toklas, who outlived Gertrude by many years. And he has her alone and sad and knitting. And with the intensity of her knitting, she basically knits back to life the salon with Gertrude. First three men appear, and we don't know who they are. Are they, are they painters? Are they paintings? And eventually, Gertrude is conjured up, and that's the prologue to um, 27. Oh! 
Prologue to 27, music by Ricky Ian Gordon, libretto by Royce Vavrek. We heard Stephanie Blythe as uh, Gertrude Stein, Elizabeth Futral as Alice B. Toklas. And uh, I should mention, and I was able to figure this out by, you know, reading the libretto as I was listening, that there's a lot of visual uh, interest in this production. There are a lot of very interesting things going on. Yes. Apparently, the their room, the their living room, is is just crammed with uh, paintings. They were they were collectors. Yes, but from floor to ceiling, there are there were some requirements, Chris. When I told Royce that I wanted him to write the libretto for this piece, some of them are. I told him I wanted the paintings to sing. So in that way, it was less important that we. Though, though one could, if it depends on the director and the production, it was less important for me to actually duplicate the walls and the paintings that were on Gertrude's salon walls as it was more important to me to evoke the vibration that those paintings seemed to have. Do you know what I mean? Um, they were so alive for those women and for the people who came to that mm. salon that I, I said I wanted the paintings to sing. So that is sort of what is evoked. And by the way, um, in, in the production that, that comes from St. Louis, there is also the wallpaper 
And this wallpaper was wallpaper that Gertrude and Alice loved so much that, that when they moved, they had the wallpaper removed and moved to the next location. So we actually, um, Alan Moyer, the set designer, duplicated that wallpaper. Wow. What happens next? Okay, so in, then in Act One, the big and major event is we have, uh, now we're at the salon and um, there is Leo Stein, there is Gertrude and Alice and Picasso and Matisse. And the big event that, that Gertrude has called everyone to the salon for is Picasso is going to unveil his portrait of Gertrude, which supposedly Gertrude sat a hundred times for. And um, uh, something major happened during that sitting, but I won't recount it now because that's in the next selection. But so basically, in in the Act One, the first part of Act One, Gertrude is welcoming everyone to the salon and uh, sort of prepping them for the unveiling of her portrait.
The Beginning of Act One of 27 by Ricky Ian Gordon, once again Stephanie Blythe as Gertrude Stein and Elizabeth Futral as Alice B. Toklas. Uh, and apparently it, it seems that these uh, very famous uh, uh, artists, Picasso, Henri Matisse, uh, have a bit of a, a thing going on, a sort of a jealousy. Yes, well, it's it's it actually you you hear it if you listen. Um, you know the first painting that Gertrude and Leo fell in love with and bought for the salon was Matisse's La Femme au Chapeau, and it was a big cost celeb. For one thing, um, it was the first time anyone painted a woman's face that was blue, and um, it was you know it was fauvist, right? It was wild beast colors, and um, it was. A big cause celeb, of course, until Gertrude discovered Picasso, and Gertrude and Picasso sort of fell in love with each other, and then Picasso started being the star of the um, of the salon. And we all know, well, we can assume that they all had large enough egos that that was not that was painful for Matisse. Um, there's also a very important thing. That sort of um, happens in 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 Act One of this piece, which is Gertrude Stein. The person she was closest to in her life was her brother Leo Stein. She she ended up going to Paris at Leo's prodding, and they started the salon together. But when Alice came into Gertrude's life, and then Gertrude started writing, an estrangement between Leo happened. First of all, because he did not like Alice, and second of all because he didn't like Gertrude's writing, and that was unacceptable to her. So at a certain point, they broke, and they never saw each other again. Supposedly, they passed each other on the street once before um, Gertrude died, but that was it. So um, in a way, what, what you do in an opera, and obviously in Act One, is we compress time. So their sort of estrangement happens in Act One, in particular in the second section it's there's a lot of emotion going on here for sure yes uh, one other thing I like about this uh, this opera is that we're looking at people that we know better than they do actually because this is relatively early in their careers yes this is yes. before Pablo Picasso became Pablo Picasso with yes. capital P and when the audience knows something that the characters don't it sort of heightens the whole experience, I think. Yes, I agree. And I think that Royce was sort of brilliant at creating um, sort of playful snapshots of these people and giving you enough so that they are located and they are sort of, they're very broad brushstrokes about who all these characters are, but we get to fill it in by what we know about them. My guest is Ricky Ian Gordon. He's the composer of 27 which is the next offering from the Michigan Opera Theater, opening this Friday at the Arthur Miller Theater in Ann Arbor, and then the following weekend on Saturday, March 10th, at the Macomb Center for the Performing Arts. We'll have more information on that at the end of this segment. And I, again, I, I, I was remiss in not mentioning this sooner, but as you listen to these excerpts, I think it's quite clear that your, your music 
is as somebody else described always looking for the silver lining it's it's very listenable it's wonderful oh i appreciate that chris i i mean you know i had ideas about what i wanted 27 to be i've often said that um i obsessively listened to verdi's falstaff and um britain's albert herring when i wrote it especially act one of albert herring because i wanted 27 to feel in a way like a souffle, but then by the end, we've opened the souffle and we go deep into the flavor of, of the, the people and who they are. And it, it ends actually quite melancholy, but what comes through, the, the, see, something I wanted to do more than anything, Chris, I didn't want to write a Gertrude Stein piece. Gertrude Stein already did that. I wanted to write a piece that celebrated the two women that I fell in love with when I first read about them and the, and that celebrated the milieu. So I wanted to write a sort of pay-in to Gertrude and Alice and all the denizens and the salon that they brought to life that will forever be remembered and mythological. Well, at the end of our previous segment, it was a flashback with Gertrude being uh, sitting for Pablo Picasso Yes. Our next segment kind of interrupts that. Yes. We go back to the salon, right? And because there's, there's yes, there's the interruption when Gertrude sits for Pablo and they have a duet. I love the duet they have about to be a genius, it takes a lot of time doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be a portrait, it takes a lot of time doing nothing. But then we go back to the studio where Leo is... And, and Matisse are sort of scandalized by the brownness of the portrait. And I should say, and I said I was going to say this, Chris, something very famous happened when, when Gertrude sat for Picasso and that portrait, which is one day he freaked out and he wiped out the face. And he basically said, I can't see you anymore. And meaning not I can't see you anymore, I cannot see your face anymore. And then one night when Gertrude, no one was there, he painted the face in. And then he was very excited and felt he had done with it. Some people said, it didn't look like Gertrude. And he said, it will. <laughs> because he knew it would be, that his portrait would be the most famous and most beautiful painting of Gertrude Stein. And he was correct.
Music from 27, music by Ricky Ian Gordon, who's joining me from the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York City. Uh, we heard Stephanie Blythe as Gertrude Stein and Elizabeth Futral as Alice B. Toklas, along with members of the St. Louis Symphony, conducted by Michael Christie in the original Opera Theater of St. Louis production. And Ricky, boy, a lot of good moments in that section. Uh, Alice seems to be quite content in her role as, what would you say, admin assistant? That's perfect. Admin assistant, yes. She managed Gertrude's life. I mean, she typed the manuscripts. She kept the people away from Gertrude who drove Gertrude crazy. She entertained the wives of the geniuses so Gertrude could could deal only with the geniuses. She cooked. She cleaned. She ran the show. Alice ran the show. She made the hors d'oeuvres for the salon. Yes. Yes. One one line of hers that I found uh, particularly striking is it's near the end of the section we played. Alice says, go be a genius, let me be a wife. Yes. <laughs> let me be the wife. <laughs> ah. Yes. That was also a, a, a very big thing for them, like what they called each other and the idea that Gertrude called Alice the wife. I mean, this was... Nobody did that at that time. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is one of my favorite sort of dramatic conceits in the piece is that at a certain point, the three men who play the, you know, and that's a conceit of the opera that these three men play everybody and everything. But at one point, they become the three wives, the wives of Picasso and Matisse, the mistresses of the artists. And then uh, there's a very important thing that happens when... Leo finally freaks out and leaves. And Alice B. Toklas said that three times in her life she heard bells in her head when she met people that she she decided they were the bells of genius. She heard bells when she met Pablo Picasso, Alfred North Whitehead, and Gertrude Stein. And for her, they were the bells of genius. So the act ends with the love duet and sort of these two women taking their vows built upon the bells of genius that, that Alice hears at 27 Rue de Florus. There is a sort of prescience to uh, the characters here. Again, remembering that uh, this is happening in the first half of the 20th century. And uh, in addition to their skill at picking winners in terms of uh, uh, art. Yes. Uh, they're dealing with issues that are very contemporary today. Well, I mean, Chris, we wrote this piece when gay marriage was absolutely on the table and story number one. So that was a part of what we wanted to do. I mean, when Opera Theatre St. Louis came to me originally and they just said, uh, we're interested in commissioning a piece from you for Stephanie Blythe and I said Gertrude Stein because I knew it had to be a a historical character who was large enough on every level to for Stephanie and Stephanie is a gigantic presence she presides she has a huge voice she's a big person and so 
Gertrude Stein seemed like the absolutely right thing to write about her. And I always wanted to write something about Gertrude Stein, and it seemed like this is one of those moments where I know exactly what to do. Well, the last excerpt from the opera that you've uh, selected for us happens to be at the very end of the opera. Yes. And it's a very poignant scene. Uh, how much do you want to tell about what happens in between before we get to this? Well, a really important thing that, you know, obviously this piece is um, sort of framed by two world wars. And one thing I told Royce when he wrote the libretto is I didn't want to whitewash Gertrude, um, meaning there is speculation. Um, not Nothing is for sure. But, for example, how did two women, two Jewish lesbians, stay, stay safe during the war? And there is speculation about her relationship with her friend Bernard Foy um, and her being a... Um, a, a sympathizer of Patan. So I told Royce I wanted to put that somewhere in the opera. And what he did is he sort of, he creates a trial where her own portrait puts her on trial. And um, basically in, in the opera, I would say the stress of it destroys her. And um, so what happens is she dies. She she dies in Alice's arms, and then there is a period when Alice is live, lives on alone. And it was a very difficult period for Alice because Gertrude's family a lot was taken away from Alice. No one entrusted her with the paintings, or so. Um, at a certain point, it's the day that Alice is sending the beautiful Picasso portrait of Gertrude to the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And first, Picasso comes to say goodbye, and they're standing there staring at it, and Gertrude appears in the frame and sings her final aria, I've been called many things. And basically, she sings of everything that she was and is, and mostly of her profound love for Alice. And the opera ends with a reprise of the love duet, The Bells, as Alice enters the portrait.
very, very poignant scene, the finale to 27 by Ricky Ian Gordon. Uh, we heard once again Stephanie Blythe as Gertrude Stein and Elizabeth Futral as Alice B. Toklas, along with members of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra conducted by Michael Christie. Uh, Ricky, uh, it's a very, very moving experience. And as you mentioned, uh, Alice was deprived of the paintings that uh, Gertrude actually bequeathed to her in her will. And, yes. and this wasn't just a, a, a sentimental thing. By this point, these paintings were worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a, a source of her uh, income. Uh, but uh, having no rights, but uh, again, it's a, it's an issue that rings true today. You can see 27 in its entirety. You have four opportunities at two different venues. This Friday, March 2nd at 7.30, it opens at the Arthur Miller Theater in Ann Arbor with another performance on Saturday, March 3rd at 7.30 as well. Then the following weekend, the production moves to the Macomb Center for the Performing Arts. And on Saturday, March 10th, there'll be a performance at 7.30, followed by a Sunday matinee at 2.30 in the afternoon. You can get more information at 313-237-SING or at michiganopera.org. Ricky Ian Gordon, what a, a delight to have this time with you and uh, an honor to talk about your opera. Uh, what's next for you? What are you working on? Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words, um, Chris. Well, the things, uh, you know, I have a reading um, this spring of my, I wrote a new piece for the Met and Lincoln Center, um, based on there's a our two Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Lynn Nottage, um, who won a Pulitzer a Pulitzer for her play Ruined and one for her play Sweat, and Intimate Apparel is an earlier play of hers that I've turned into an opera. And we're going to do a workshop at the Met, directed by Bart Scher. And my opera, Morning Star, is about to be done in New York City by on-site opera. And I'm actually excited about it. It's going to be done at the Eldridge Street Synagogue. And it's about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Um, uh. And many of the women who died in that fire worshipped at that factory. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, actually worked there, but was homesick on the day of the fire. So I have that, and then I'm writing um, an opera for Prototype for Beth Morrison Productions, where I've taken a poem by the great poet Frank Bedart, who won the National Book Award this year, and he wrote a poem uh, called Ellen West, based on a case study about a woman named Ellen West in Germany who died of an eating disorder. Wow. Well, no grass growing under your feet, sir. No, (laughs) not right now. (laughs) Ricky Ian Gordon, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris.